Guys, can I just say for a moment? Episode fucking 30. I know. Just w- Good job, us. We out here. We out here. <laughs> Especially a Shawnee that said Ark or me. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I refuse to call it anything but Ark or me now. <laughs> yup. It's the Ark or me from now on. Be out here. Okay. All right. Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 30, One Does Not Simply Return the King. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Hello there, everyone. It's me, Wanda. I'm going to start us off talking about what happens in the very first chapter of Book 5 of Lord of the Rings, which is also the first book of Return of the King, if you didn't know that. Da, 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 (laughs) da, da, da. I was just imagining for a second that Wanda, like, came back for season three by herself, and she's just like, it is I, Wanda. (laughs) And nobody else. One does not simply alienate Navia and Ashani as I have. Anyway, I hope you guys are excited for me to just talk you through Return of the King by myself. Uh, I'm pl- I play you guys. I start. I like started to like have a. I record all three parts and I pretend that you guys are still here. Um. Uh. So, the first chapter sees Pippin and Gandalf finally arriving in Minas Tirith. They have galloped a long way, and during the ride on Shadowfax's back, Gandalf has brought Pippin up to speed, which would normally mean that we, the readers, would get up to speed, but Pippin is not listening, so we get all of the exposition later. There's also a lot that Gandalf does not tell us, and, or that we're never brought up to speed on. So this entire chapter is like kind of piecing together what is and is not known by anyone about the current state of play in Minas Tirith. But we can, what we can gather is that things are pretty bad in Gondor. Sauron is about to, uh, in Gandalf's words, open his full game. And people in Gondor are just beginning to understand how serious the situation is, that they haven't just been going through hard times recently that Sauron is, in fact, about to wage total war. So, somewhat belatedly, the powers that be in Minas Tirith have lit the beacons to summon people from other corners of Gondor to Minas Tirith's aid. And as the those people begin to trickle in, we see Gandalf and Pippin play some politics with Denethor to try and get him to uh, do some reasonable things to protect his people, without revealing that Aragorn, heir to Elendil, and the rightful throne that Denethor now occupies is on his way over. Did I miss anything, you guys? This is kind of a complicated chapter. It is. There's a lot going on. Uh, I'm, I just want to start out by saying I was, like, really kind of taken aback that the beacons were already lit, because it's, like, a huge plot point in the movie that 
Denethor doesn't want to light the beacons and call for aid, and Pippin does it anyway. But in this, like, they're by the time Pippin and Gandalf arrive, like, they've already asked for help. Yeah, and it kind the, of yeah. Cha- yeah, it changed how I like saw Denethor in this chapter. And maybe that's where we should start, just because like I also was not expecting the Denethor that we meet in this chapter. Like, this is a Denethor who is grieving, obviously, and is upset by Boromir's death, but also still seems very politically sharp. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly has enough of a grasp on reality that he is playing the game when he talks to Gandalf and Pippin and, like, does seem to still have a lot of, like, the respect of his people, like... It hasn't basically just totally gone bonkers off the deep end. Yeah, that, no, he's totally right? playing like, the game. He's not. He is playing the game with uh, Gandalf and Pippin, and in, in like kind of subtly trying to question them and figure out what's what's going on. But he's also, mm-hmm. it's implied, doing backroom negotiations or conversations with Sauron by way of the seeing stone that he probably possesses. Well, so that that was something that I wanted to ask you guys about because it is strongly implied here that he has a palantir, right? Right, because I think I he says get that palantir impression. and then he winks at Pippin or something like that. <laughs> He's there. It was weird. Like he first says, "Oh, oh shucks, too bad. All the seeing stones were lost," and then like very strongly implies that he has one. Right, because um, he looks right at Pippin, I'm... who has been looking into the seeing stone. Yeah. Which I assumed meant that he saw Pippin in the Palantir. Oh, I did not read it that way at all. I read it as he. We are given the kind of the the hint that Denethor has some of the slight like precognition, slight telepathy, where it's not like he can read minds, but he can kind of see into what people are thinking and there's some implications of like or not even implications it's just said like he can kind of turn his will towards seeing out and seeing into the future a little bit and so I kind of read it as he knows that Pippin had his hands on the Palantir and that he's maybe interested in getting one or thinks that Pippin could help him get one rather than him having one himself he's a terrifying dude so, confirmed that he does have a Palantir at some point. I don't know if he has it at this particular point. Well, but... one one interesting piece of context that we get at a certain point in the chapter is that uh, Denethor's subjects understand that sometimes he is caucusing with Sauron. It's been rumored. And so whether that's Where happening... Is that? Uh, like, I, I don't remember that in the reading. I believe you. I just, I'm like, wow, I totally must have missed that. So that character, this character, Baragond, like... that will, will mm-hmm. everyone else just hold tight. We'll explain who this person is. But Baragond says at one point when he's describing Denethor's various capabilities, or maybe Gandalf says this, um, just says, like, this is, Denethor is not a typical guy. He's kind of a, uh, he's got some interesting powers. And those include the fact that he's been rumored to be talking to Sauron. Oh, I don't remember that 
Oh, wow. Okay. Navia, do you, uh, do you remember it? I don't remember that, but... Oh, I found, I think, what you were talking about, Wanda, where it says, um, Baragon says, that he will at times search even the mind of the enemy wrestling with him. Yes. But I read that as, like, it's not that they're talking, it's that he is trying to essentially do to Sauron what Sauron does to other people by, like, cracking into his mind palace and divining his intentions that it's not like they're having discussions right, or but like how does he read like the, sort the of... mordor times or something like i feel like he's there's some <laughs> there's some other way that he's getting into sauron's mind well there he's not getting into sauron's mind sauron is showing yeah. him visions in the palantir he thinks that he is in control and that he is like communing with sauron but in reality, he's just being shown things. Here's here's the like key moment that, and this will come later, but this is the key moment that it's like revealed, is that he basically the reason that he decides to kill Faramir and himself is because he thinks that he sees Frodo captured and he thinks that Sauron has the ring, because that is a vision that he sees in the Palantir, and mm. while it is true in that moment that. <laughs> Frodo is captured, right? We've already seen that happen mm -hmm. in the last book. He he doesn't know like the follow up that the ring is still with him because Sam right. has taken it. So you think you're well, that's sometimes like, you think you're talking to Sauron, but really you're just listening, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so that's basically like what he sees in the Palantir, which is kind of the confirmation that he has it. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I think to like uh, get back to something that you were saying, Shani, like he's different than I imagined him to be. And he's also, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say necessarily just respected by his people. He's just, I think he's just straight up intimidating to them because he has these like weird powers and the, the, his people tend to go, okay, Denethor is doing something weird again, but that's just kind of what he does. <laughs> And we assume that he understands something that we don't understand, which is really scary and uh, feels eerily like sometimes what it is like to live in this country with this government where you have like the CIA and the FBI being like, okay, we understand something. Don't worry. We have to, we have to spy on all of you guys, but it's because we understand something that you don't, don't understand. Don't understand. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's balanced out by decisions that do seem justifiable, right? Like, we have that moment where Pippin is looking at all of the people evacuating the city, and it's very orderly. And it's like, it makes sense that they would be trying to get all of the non combatants out, that they have this plan, that like they need to be out by this time so that when reinforcements are coming down that same road in the opposite direction, they can get there right and all of yeah. that is like oh yeah this isn't someone who's just totally stuck in his own delusions yeah that's a very sensible thing to do and there's also like i mean the fact that there hasn't been a king in gondor for like umpteen years right so so mm -hmm. like denethor for his entire lifetime has been the de facto ruler and even though he's technically a steward and doesn't sit on the throne it's like pretty understandable that his attitude is like well this is my city right like even though gandalf gets pretty snarky about it and i think like it's probably going to continue later on as aragorn finally makes his appearance known um but like 
I think it's it's pretty understandable that he just is the king for the city and in a monarchy, right? Like there's not really a lot of room for subjects to question the will of a king. Mhm. And actually what you were saying Wanda about like it is a little bit where people in charge are saying, okay, well, we know these things and we're making decisions and you just have to go along with it. And that's the way that people feel about Denethor. There is that moment where Pippin draws a parallel between Denethor and Gandalf. And as you said that, I was like, yeah, because that is what Gandalf does. Gandalf comes in and is like, I know things and I'm going to make decisions and I'm not necessarily going to tell you what those decisions are or why I'm making them, but you just need to go along with the fact that I know things, and therefore, you should do what I tell you to do. And just I love like with that Gandalf, comparison. I think he's operating in like a realm of uncertain legitimacy. Denethor, oh, my lights like... are flickering, you guys. I don't know if you can see it. <laughs> no, yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> oh no! Come on, power grid. Ugh. Keep your shit together. <laughs> but yeah, there's that, and there's also the strangeness of Minas Tirith that seems to permeate this whole chapter it feels like a really different vibe and space than any that we have been in or that the characters have been in in the series up until this point it feels sort of modern in comparison Mm -hmm. with everything else it's bizarre because you're all of a sudden like in the eye of or the center of all of this what would you call it like um like the this is where all the kings are it's like it's like all of a sudden you're in, you're like on Wall Street or something like that. And he, there's the, the point at which Pippin swears fealty to Denethor, it's partly triggered by Denethor almost looking at him like, I can't believe that my favorite son died for you. And mm-hmm. you seem like nothing. And Pippin swears fealty to him almost to get back at him and to, almost as if to say, like, I'm more than you think that I am. And, yeah, it's it's a yeah. moment where he doesn't want to be underestimated anymore. I think they actually and, do it in the movies really well, where, like, it's just it, everything, every like, the whole scene is, like, so bizarre, and Pippin's like, what the fuck do I do right now? Though I would say in the book, the thing that I remember being different is that compared to the fact that it does feel very rash... Not just impulsive, right? But, like, rash and not necessarily super well thought through in the movies. In the books, it feels impulsive, but not thoughtless, right? Like, there's a difference in the way that Pippin is making this decision where he's like, I... I, Like, it's his pride is being stung, but he's not just saying it out of nowhere. He's like, no, no, no. This is an appropriate gesture for me to make and I think it's really important that repeatedly we get the other people in Gondor, Denethor and Baragond and I think even Baragond's son Burgil, Burgil? Gerbil. <laughs> Gerbil. Yes. <laughs> Baragond's son Gerbil. <laughs> Saying things like, "Oh, you know, just because you have an accent, like, doesn't mean you don't have good manners, like, courtesy. And I think it's also really important that there's a reason why they assume he's a prince of the halflings. And it's because he is acting in a way that is 
very noble in not just the descriptive sense, but noble in the sense of this is how somebody who is accustomed to the workings of power and to leadership and loyalty and fealty and like all of those things would act. Yeah, and I yeah. think it it bears fruit for him immediately. He's popular immediately and he can go anywhere he wants and he's invited to like the special servants quarters, the the like mess hall of like the highest ranking military men that get to cosplay as Aragorn. And <laughs> wait, can we just talk about that for a second actually? I noticed this detail in the chapter that I really wanted to get your guys' thoughts on and it's how when they're walking up to the citadel for the first time, they notice that the most like the innermost guard uh the guardsmen are all wearing the sigil of the house of Elendil. i don't know what you'd call it but they're they're mm-hmm. wearing what's described as like the livery of the heirs of Elendil. the stuff that Elendil and his soldiers and his family would have worn when they were alive so they're literally wearing heirloom helmets and uniforms from like hundreds if not thousands of years ago and it was that was uh I guess a, a detail that I had overlooked in the movie in the last time that I read this, but I I thought it was really bizarre and changed how I looked at this society. Like a society where like the idea of the king coming back is so remote that they have just decided to start paying people a good yearly wage to cosplay as Aragorn just to like <laughs> reaffirm the national identity. And meanwhile, Denethor is in charge. Well, but that makes sense to me, right? Like, because livery is what you would have, like, when they talk about livery, it's what you would have your servants and your footmen and your guards wear, rather than what you would necessarily wear yourself. It basically identifies them as working for your house. And so, to me, it's this, it felt like this recognition of, in the same way that Denethor does not sit on the throne, he sits on a chair on a lower level platform. Mm-hmm. That it's this really clear sense of even if we haven't had a king for centuries, we are still serving the king of Gondor. Like we are still yeah. in allegiance to which the ruling line. I think that makes it really interesting to me, this choice that Gandalf makes to, like, not reveal that Aragorn is coming. Um, Because, obviously, we know that Denethor's about to go off the deep end, but, like, he's not yet at that point. And all Mm. of these actions, like, not sitting on the throne, continuing to wear this, or to outfit his staff in this livery of the king and everything, indicates to me that he doesn't see himself as the king and he's being deliberate in making that distinction he hasn't like tried to usurp the throne in that way and so i wonder if he would actually be antagonistic to the idea of isildur's heir coming back um and you know taking his right his what denethor probably sees as his rightful place on the throne given the way he's set this up do you think that they actually how do you think that like denethor and like regular people in in Gondor actually feel about the prospect of a king returning. I I feel like that's the part where I think Denethor would need a, a fair amount of convincing just to demonstrate that Aragorn is the real deal. And I think the part where 
he might be open to it in theory, but I think the reality, and quite frankly, given our discussions about Aragorn, like I think the skepticism that would probably occur for a lot of folks is warranted. Like, here's this guy who's been out living in the wilderness. Yeah, where you been, hasn't bro? been <laughs> Yeah, like, who hasn't been doing any sort of management of, like, the running and care of an entire city, much less an entire, like, nation of people. I mean, I think it would be I mean, a situation where, like, the people of Gondor would probably be thrilled about it, right? Because it would, for them, it would be like their mythical hero returning from the dead. And they they don't really have the political wherewithal to understand what this guy's experience has been because to them, he's a legend, right? Like, they don't think that this is yeah, a real thing mm-hmm. that's a possibility. But for Denethor, yeah, I kind of agree where it's, it's a pretty warranted skepticism, not only that he is the heir, but that he could do this job. And I think, like, it goes back to what, back in, like, the first book when we were just like, Boromir is right about a lot of this. <laughs> and here also, Denethor is kind of right in his take that not only, like, has Aragorn not had any experience, but, like, where has he been? Gondor Wait, has been... Wait, you mean been... when Boromir's like, you're, you're king of what? What have you done? Yeah, what have you done? And also, hey, we've been defending Minas Tirith on the border of Mordor for, like, years now. (laughs) Where have you been? I'm sorry. Yeah, we've been on the border. (laughs) On the border. Uh, And and they've been there. Yeah, I mean, they've been fighting and defending the realm of Gondor and this basically, like, the last stand for the good people of Middle-earth, right? And Aragorn's just been, like, rangering. Not to yeah, say that, that yeah. that's not, like, a job or anything, but, like, he could have come and taken this mantle at any time. He's ancient. Mm-hmm. Well, so what happens then? You know, like, you're without, like, the, the king dies, his heirs are nowhere to be found. Nominally, you are still a country that is held together by the idea of a king from this particular and, and, line. And the very real position of the steward who's been doing this job. Yeah. And the very real position of the steward. And at the same time... As you maintain this intense, like, king-focused identity as a country, you also have allowed the, like, the notion that there ever will be a king again to kind of pass into this, like, the realm of the legendary or, like, the, like, a very, very, very distant possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, to have these guards, like, point taken about the livery not being what Elendil would have actually worn... Course, it is kind of funny though before. to imagine like a like Times Square costume style. Right. <laughs> I know. I was like, I don't want to stop you because I love the idea of all of these guards cosplaying as Aragorn. <laughs> what it really sounds like is like if you had if there was no more Queen of England, but you still had Buckingham Palace, and like the guards were like they they had they had guns, and they also still dressed up like guards do today at the Buckingham Palace, which is already yeah. pretty out yeah. of date. But you know what I mean. Well, and it's interesting because I think there's, I know it's not the way that this is going to go, but there's a part of me that feels like there's a, a link between the way that Gondor is basically stuck waiting for a king and then has also been declining. Like, I think, Wanda, you pointed out in your notes this sort of, like, sadness or eeriness of 
all of these great houses being abandoned. And Baragon says something like, there already weren't a lot of kids in this city. Like, this is not a flourishing people. They are diminishing. And... And there's this sense of, like, it's because you're stuck. Like, you're stagnant in this idea that a king is going to come back and a king is going to, like, save you and Gondor will rise again. And I know that's what happens, but I'm also, like, I kind of don't think that's right. Like, I don't think that's the right response. It kind of reminded me of Lorien in that that way, you know, where, Mm -hmm. like, they basically have made the choice to be stagnant and because of that they're diminishing. Yeah, it's like it's definitely got to the to the degree that like the men of Numenor and their descendants who live in Gondor have elf blood or like an a half half elven heritage. That's definitely showing up in like their internal crisis right now that they're like, "Okay, I guess we'll just fade." Even though it's like <laughs> you are men, <laughs> you can still make a stand, you can still exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but then they are also doing that, right? Because they are men. So they are still like, I mean, Faramir is still defending the, like, outposts of Gondor, and they're kind of trying a little bit. Yeah. And they're, like, but lighting the beacons. it kind of raises the stuff. question of, like, yeah, like, they could have changed more, right? They could have opened up more. They could have built relations with, like, other people around them that could have been stronger. They could have, like gone to a different structure of government there are there are Mm -hmm. options here that are not like ah yes this tree is dead and so we will just sit here in this city (laughs) waiting for the king to return it's a very sad chapter like maybe like the attitude is like we're gondor we're the best there was there was multiple times in this chapter where characters just straight up said like well, I guess we're all going to die. <laughs> like, like Baragon yeah. has that realization when he and Pippin are just, like, hanging out outside the wall. We should probably mention who Baragon is at this point. But... <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope you're reading along. Bye. No. He, so Pippin basically gets a tour of Minas Tirith from this guard that has been assigned to show him around. And it's kind of a delightful little, like, interlude in this chapter where he's just like here is how we do things in Gondor yeah (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but they have a moment where they're just like kind of sitting around uh, out right like they're like leaning on some wall and they both just like sit there and Pippin I think senses like a Nazgul or something and Mm. they there's like a darkness that passes over them and then they like have this moment where they're just like well it's all over. Uh-oh. Oh, no. If she drops out, I'm assuming it means her Wi-Fi is down because her power has gone out. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's texted us. Navia says, literally is Navia <laughs> literally is saying says. a darkness passes over them. She loses power. <laughs> no, sorry, I'm back. It's just my Wi-Fi. Okay. Yeah, so, uh... Baragond. Uh, so Baragond is basically this guard who is showing Pippin around the city in this delightful little interlude in this chapter um, that is basically like a travel blog of Minas Tirith. And they, are, they have this moment where they're sitting outside 
uh, and just like hanging out, watching. Um, I don't know what they're really looking at. I guess just like out past Minas Tirith, and Pippin like senses a, a Nazgul. And as he does so, there's like a, a darkness that passes over them. When this darkness comes, basically they just sit there and they're like, well, all is lost. Like, it's it's over. We're done. Uh, we're just going to fight this battle for no reason. And after the darkness passes, Pippin has like a moment of resilience where he's just like, no, 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 never mind. Like, I still have faith and hope. But I thought it's it, it was interesting that this chapter... Like, Wanda, you were saying it's really sad. And I also felt like it was sad, but the weird thing was, like, sad things were happening, but the tone of the chapter didn't feel sad to me for some reason. And I think that's because it was from Pippin's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And actually... Oh, no, no. Well, I was going to say, Wanda, will you talk about what you said about Pippin growing up? Because I loved that part of your notes, and I think that's very related to, like why even though a lot of this is like very grim in the sense of it's the eve before battle and Gondor is is in a bad position for the oncoming fight there is that sense of like lightness and hopefulness right because Pippin is like yeah so well to balance out everything that's happening and the total war that's about to begin Pippin is really coming into his own sort of as this Prince of Halflings character that, or having that, that title, but also just like literally getting some stature and respect that he didn't have before, beginning with Denethor talking to him and only him for an hour to question him about Boromir's death. Uh, and then he swears fealty and he joins the ranks of people that are working for Denethor. So he has this this new stature and this new kind of place in a community where people actually are listening to him. And it's interesting to see how much his character changes. His character changes dramatically. You don't see him blabbing on and on, and you don't see him asking stupid little questions. He almost immediately becomes a a character that's more like Frodo, I want to say. And what I like about it is that it's not the kind of character development that you often get in stories where it's like, oh, this person has struggled and suffered and now they've come out of it a more mature, less flawed version of themselves. It's like, no, you're literally a different person in different settings. And Pippin is now in a setting where people are treating him like a mature person worthy of listening to. And look at that, he grows up. Um, So that's a very positive part of the chapter. And I think that's what that's what gives it that like lighter tone. And it's it's mentioned too that Pippin says what age he is. He says he's 29 and that for hobbits that's basically like 4 years shy of adulthood, right? What is considered adulthood for them. So he's basically a teenager and this is akin to basically when it when you know, you graduate and get a job and people start treating you like a person who has to have responsibilities and you kind of grow up and act like one because of it. Yeah. I think that's like, that. that's a, uh, that's real. I definitely grew up when I was allowed to like, and a lot of things like when I moved out of my parents' house, I began doing a lot of things like taking care of washing my face 
that I had never done while I was living with them. Because if someone treats you like, uh, like basically an invalid, then that's sometimes how you'll behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really telling that, you know, comic relief aside, Pippin actually comports himself really well throughout this chapter. Like, he's charming and he's pleasant and polite, but he's also funny and fun in a way that's not, like, mean-spirited. And it's not really surprising to me that people like him Mm -hmm. as they meet him around the city and that people look at him and they're like, oh, yeah, like, here's this confident, probably royalty (laughs) guy because he really kind of steps into that role in a way that's cool to see. But he's also Um, very humble, right? Like, yeah, he he talks about the things he's seen and his journey here, but he doesn't talk about it like he's listing his accomplishments in any way. He's just kind of like, this is what happened. And I was there. Um, And I think people really like that about him because they're like, oh, man, like we thought that, you know, this guy was like a child, but he's actually seen and done a lot. And he doesn't even, you know, it hasn't gone to his head at all. Yeah, it's like a it's it's a great part of the book having read the entirety of the two towers where compared to the the senior figures in Rohan, Pippin and Mary are treated like they're small, like they're very small. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's done, you know, sort of for their protection, right? Like Gandalf kind of treats them like they're not very important or don't have any stature. Um partly cuz like Gandalf needs somebody like that or something. But it's, mm-hmm. I like that Tolkien is like showing you, here's what it, here's what happens if someone's put into different conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's actually really good for Pippin in this chapter to not only for the first time be without Mary, who does kind of, you know, take a lot of the burden of responsibility when he's around. And, but he's also like, he can't find Gandalf for most of this chapter. And I think that's like really good for him. Yeah. Yeah, Gandalf is actually yeah. gone. He's disappeared and we still don't really know where he is or what he's doing. Except that yeah. he's trying to find Faramir. <laughs> he's just he spends the entire chapter just being like, Where is Faramir? <laughs> I wonder if Gandalf has like a laser style like if he's focused in on Faramir as like this motherfucker is gonna think I'm great <laughs> and respect <laughs> me, um, because of the kind of person that Faramir is. It's so funny, like, thinking about Gandalf as just, like, a guy who goes around and, and, like, tries to find people that will take him seriously. Right? Like, he wants Faramir to come back so that someone will listen to him. Like, he can't handle the fact that Denethor (laughs) has his own opinions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's good for Gandalf, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How do you guys think that the, like, the movie's... Uh, handled what Gondor or is is like in in particular like the the way in which it is dysfunctionally responding to the threat from Mordor because it's a little bit different in the movies than it is in the books here how do you feel about that do you think it is actually dysfunctional how they're responding I mean this is a pretty huge threat and even when Aragorn shows back up, the only reason that they really win is because he has, like, the deus ex machina of the ghost army. Right, but, like, it 
it is like I I guess I would say it's at the very least it's it's different in the movies than it is in the books, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the main difference. I mean, I is... think it gets simple. Sorry, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like I think it gets simplified down. We've talked about this with regard to characters and other plot points, right? But it basically gets softened down to its most basic form. That like here is someone who's trying to cling on to power and who's getting impacted by his grief to the point that he's not thinking straight and that's why like he's making bad decisions and I think it's a little more complicated here I don't know that anything that Gondor like Gondor's leadership or Gondor's army is doing now is a bad decision in the context of where they're at right now right like I think if you were going to say where could they have done better it would be hey Maybe a hundred years ago, you should have thought about the fact that, like, waiting for a king who doesn't appear to be showing back up is not a great plan. And you should talk about how to be more flexible and adapt your, like, understanding of who you are as a people and as a nation in a way that's going to be more effective for you going forward. Right? But that's not a decision they can make now on the eve of all-out war. So, you know, if we say, like, well, what could they do differently now? I don't know that there's all that much. Yeah, you can't just yeah. go back to the good old days um, on the eve right. of battle. Yeah, I think that yeah, it's I like... Think the, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you, you should go, Navia. I was just going to say, I, I think the main difference isn't really anything that we see with, like, how Gondor works, but just, like how out of his mind Denethor is at this point. Because in the movie, he's just, like, immediately bonkers. And here, it's much more like, no, this guy is, like, in charge, and he knows what's up, and he's doing his best. But I think, like, Gandalf kind of says something along the lines of that Denethor has become, like, consumed by his grief and isn't really, like, focusing on running things anymore. And I think that's kind of, like, a... a, not very empathetic take from Gandalf because Denethor is again. Let's remind everyone: two weeks have passed since Boromir died, yeah. uh, he and Denethor has basically just learned about it and gotten this confirmation. So it kind of makes sense that he would be grief stricken, and his reaction doesn't seem like he's just like thrown everything under the bus because he's absolutely consumed by grief. It just feels like he's a he's a dude that loved his son. Well, and he's already using his grief as a uh, as an excuse to question Pippin for an hour about what is nominally details around Boromir's death, but what is really uh, an interrogation about the Fellowship. Yeah, like he's clearly not unreasonable in his grief because he's using it. But I also think, as you pointed out, feeling grief is also not unreasonable like having a lot of grief and occasionally lashing out or saying something that you might not say when you were calmer is a, like a normal reaction because he heard the horn 13 days ago but the the horn itself wouldn't have washed up like right away we kind of have to assume so he maybe hasn't like known for more than a week and a half at most. Yeah, I did not wake up today thinking I would be Team Denethor. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he's all of our favorite but, character I mean, now. Yay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We love you, Dennis. But, like, what a horrible thing, right? <laughs> like, what a horrible thing to, like, lose your first kid. Arguably, I don't think... We can, in fact, not even really arguably. Yeah, At this point, it's pretty clear. Kid. Your favorite kid. <laughs> and now you are, like, old, and the person you thought was going to be able to take over from you, the hope of your line, and the hope of your city is gone. And and now you're on the eve of this all-out war. Like, if Denethor is having a hard time, yeah. Who wouldn't be? I think what I do, like, I I do th- kind of object to in the movies and their treatment of this is that, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm always the one that's shitting on the movies here, even though I appreciate them more than ever these days. Um, but I think that what I do object to in the movies about the treatment of Denethor is how they make him look paranoid. Um, mm-hmm. And whereas, just like, I think it was Navi that said this a minute ago, he's has a legitimate curiosity about what the heck has been going on all this time and why it was that his son had to die. What the cause was that was so important that his favorite son gave his life. Yeah. Yeah. Which feels... Which is a very valid question. And Gandalf is keeping that information from him and he knows. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Gandalf is acting like, I don't know, whatever. Never mind. I'm not even going to finish that thought. We talked about it enough. Uh, I think let's, I, I'm, I'm feeling like wrapping it up here unless you guys have quick fires that you really want to share. Uh, yeah, I like that. I don't really, uh, before we recorded, I thought we were going to talk about this line, uh, where he says, build it and carve it. And I was going to yeah, suggest one does not simply edit your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were definitely some editing issues in this chapter, but we didn't talk about that yeah. at all. So, build uh, I couldn't even tell if that was like an editing issue or just like an intentional, like old timey mm-hmm. way to say that. I do. Okay, oh, just a, a thought. This is not going in the recording, but I just wanted to say this to you. I am having like some thoughts are percolating in my head about like Tolkien and how he designs these cities that are really odd. Like, the fact that Minas Tirith is a city of seven levels that is built around, like, a ship-shaped outcropping of rock. I was like, that is... Yeah. That is intense. That's like some Frank Lloyd Wright shit right there. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Wanda. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to.